Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of our weekly Exploring the Parsha class with Rabbi Rebecca Schatz and Rabbi Matt Shapiro. So welcome, everyone. Uh, if you're listening on the podcast, you have missed a very silly past three minutes. So we'll see how things go from here. Um, Shabbat Shalom. Chodesh uh, Tov. Oh, oh, excuse me. Chodesh Tov. That's why we're so silly, Rabbi. Misha, 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 Okay, that's enough of that. Um, we are entering into Adar with joy in our hearts and a smile on our faces and just general disorientation all around. And that fits well. But now we have an excuse. Segway. What? Now we have an excuse for the disorientation. That's what I'm saying. And that's a beautiful segue into our verses for today. Uh, Elon, I'm going to be, based on your um, ongoing frustration with God as Mafia Don, um, I'm going to be very interested in um, your your sense of uh, what we're going to be checking out today. Um uh, these are some of my my favorite favorite verses. I I was going back to my notes. I thought I had taught them at, at some point in my uh, long long career at Temple Betham, but I I don't think I have yet. So I'm excited to share them with you now. Um, and yeah, let's just get to it. So we're in. Where did it go? There it is. Hello. Um, we're in Parshat Mishpatim. Which, um, at least generally, I think, is thought of as a relatively, in comparison to what came last week with all of the narrative pieces about Revelation at Sinai, um, much of Mishpatim is much drier, right? Sort of going through verse by verse and, and, and sort of starting to get the download on what are going to be the rules of conduct for the Israelite people moving forward. Um, but there's this, there's this fascinating, like, <laughs> nugget of narrative towards the end of the Parsha, um, before we move into the, um, always compelling verses and verses and verses on the building of the Mishkan that Rabbi Schatz will be in charge of finding the interesting parts of next week. Um, but there's this fascinating, uh, nugget of narrative that we're, that we're going to, um, look into uh, a dimension of, and, and we'll we'll sort of hop hop through the the parak that that gets us there, um, and then we will uh, literally and figuratively and virtually zoom in. Okay, so um, here we are. If I'll just sort of like scroll back up to show that um, if if you go up, you can you can sort of see in what's proceeding in in chapter twenty three. Um, although there's another piece that was in there that was interesting that we almost went with, but Rabbi Schatz says, teach the verses you love, Rabbi Shapiro. And I say, who am I to argue with you, Rabbi Schatz? Um, but if you scroll up and you look through chapter 23, you'll see that it's pretty legalistic that, that much of the Parsha is. Chapter 24, however, <clears throat> God says to Moses, um, 
come up, come up to God, right? Well, it's actually, it doesn't, doesn't the El Moshe Amar, we don't know who said, um, but presumably God says to Moses, come, come up with Aaron and Nadav and Abihu and 70 elders of Israel and bow low from afar. So th- this just sort of dipping back to something I said last week, the, the narratives around revelation at Sinai are, confusing and discombobulating and not particularly linear. And again, like the, the closer you look at them, the more confusing they are, right? They, they are not um, linear start to finish A to B to C narratives. They're just, they're just not, which is, which is very interesting. I would argue intentional um, and it's, and it's interesting stuff. So we, we were in Yitra last week, but now here's, Another dimension to this, right, with a smaller subset, much smaller subset of the people, but still, like, something different is happening here. This idea, Moses alone shall come close, but the others won't, and definitely not everybody else. So it's sort of tiered, right, that there's Moses, there's these other 73 guys, um, and then there's everybody else. Then Moses went and repeated to people everything and so on and so forth. And here um, we're starting to to get into, it's sort of anticipating a verse you know well, right? The people say, great, all the things that God has commanded us, we will do. Um, Moses then wrote them down. There's an interesting tangent we could go into here that I'll just name the the difference between an oral tradition and a written tradition, which I think is, is sort of hinted at here at least a little bit. There was the the oral transmission of the law, and now Moses is actually writing them down. And now we get into a, a brief but also very interesting sort of ritual component that happens where Moses sets up an altar with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. Some Na'areb and Israel, some young men are, are designated to offer up sacrifices, which is not something, if you think about your favorite... Uh, cinematic retelling of of this story generally you don't you don't see that going on you don't see the sacrificing of goats in in the ten commandments although um remakes are always happening in hollywood so maybe next time um but but there's there are sacrifices that happen and then there is something that anticipates rituals that would happen in the temple right which if you've read any any details of what actually happened in the temple it's pretty bloody right? It, it's pretty um, visceral, and I'm using that word intentionally, with viscera, right? That That's what's going on here. So Moses takes some blood, and some of it is set aside, some of it is placed on the altar. He read, He takes Sefer Habrit, which is an interesting phrase. He takes the, the record, the book of the covenant, reads it out loud. Here's a phrase that, that many of you, I'm sure, know well. The people say, all that God has said, we will do it and we will hear it. We will hear, we will act on it and we will understand it, right? This, this idea that um, is often held up as Judaism as a religion of action, right? That you don't necessarily have to um, connect 100% with what you're doing before you do it, that we are grounded in ritual, we are grounded in action, we are a behavioral religion, um, and through that we understand and we learn, etc. Lots there too. Moses takes the blood and he throws it on the people by Israq al Ha'am. Again, not necessarily something you think of when you think about Sinai. And he says that this is the blood of the covenant. Rabbi Shatz, we keep talking about covenants and blood. Um, 
I don't think that's our fault. I think it's uh, no, but it's it's inter- it's interesting that like of the verses we that that it's a uh, yeah it's it's our it is it's probably my fault um, that God. No, has, no, no, I'm uh, just saying like covenant and blood go hand in hand. Like it's not like we're not making this up. It's there. I agree. We are not making this up. That that God, uh, that Moses rather takes takes the blood and and um, throws it on the people. Okay, all of that is the preamble, right? And even here already, um, again speaking for myself, not necessarily dimensions of the Sinai experience that are what most that are what most readily come to mind for me. These next three verses in particular, oh boy, love them. Let's dive in. Okay. Um, so we're going to be focusing in today, Shemot chapter 24, verses 9, 10, 11. Vayal Moshev Aaron, Nadav, Ve'aviu, Veshivim, Mizikne Israel. Moses, Aaron, Nadav, Avihu, 70 elders of Israel ascended. Where, when, how, we don't really know, but they ascended. Scrolling back up for a second, it seems like it's the same group, Right. That, that is being discussed at the beginning of the chapter. Same um, names specified and same number of elders specified. Vayiru et Elohei Yisrael. And they saw the God of Israel. Ra'ah, saw. Betachat ra'lav kema'asel livnat hasapir uche'etzem hashamayim latohar. How do you translate that? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and they saw the God of Israel, and I'll just read the JPS, but there's plenty to dive into here. Under his feet, there was the likeness of a pavement of sapphire, like the very sky for purity. Beautiful image, right? And against the leader's Atile is an interesting word. The leaders of the Israelites, God did not send his hand, raise his hand. They, they beheld God, just to name verse 10, Ra'ah, see. Verse 11, Chazah, also word for see, usually um, more closely associated with, with prophecy. Chazon is prophecy. They prophetically beheld God and they ate and they drink. Okay. Those are the verses that we're going to look at. I would just I would like to give a, a brief, brief coda. The, the rest of the chapter has also another chunk of narrative, right? Where Moses actually gets to the tablets, which is interesting that there is a distinction drawn in the narrative between Sefer Habrit and the actual tablets, right? You don't usually hear about Sefer Habrit. You don't usually hear about Sefer Habrit. And there's another chunk of narrative that happens here in terms of Moses going up to the mountain and a cloud and kavod Adonai, the presence of God, right? Even the, there's another chunk that seems to have another dimension of revelatory narrative. Um, check it out in your own free time. Let us know what you see. Um, but it's, mm-hmm. That's my that's my sermon tomorrow morning. So. Oh, perfect. So I will not spoil that. Tune in for more. Uh, with Rabbi Schatz's sermon tomorrow. So I won't say anything else about it. No, no, you can. I just, the, the two revelations piece is going to be what I do. Great. Cool. Uh, great coming attraction. Okay. Uh, I'll pause talking us through there. Over to Rabbi Schatz. Okay. So we're going to do Kushiot. I just want to point out before we do Kushiot um, that this class came to be right before we started with Brayshit with the first 
book, but also the first Parsha of our year. Um, and one of the things that Rabbi Shapiro and I discussed when we were thinking up this class was that there's a certain point at which you get to in the Torah and you're like, oh gosh, I don't know that I'm going to find anything interesting. Um, either I know too much or they're just going to talk about sacrifices or later on oozing body parts, right? And it's very hard to find like a nugget that you can say, let's just dive into this verse. Um, and and this Parsha was actually in my mind, like where that would pivot. And beautifully, I haven't, I can't speak for Rabbi Shapiro, but I haven't yet felt that way. Like I, I, I was nervous that right after the Ten Commandments, it would feel as though we kind of entered this technical period of, of literature in our Torah that would be harder to find uh, pieces to share. And, and we haven't yet. And I'm so, I'm just, that is, that is. We're one for one is what you're saying. Yeah, well, that's the beauty of this class. That's what I was excited to explore. And uh, I just, I'm glad that it's, that it's uh, making all my dreams come true. Uh, okay. So. Good luck. You, you. Go next week with the Mishkan. We'll see how that goes. Sorry, you froze. What? Like, good, good luck what? I, I said good luck next week with the Mishkan. We'll see how that goes. I'm telling you, I think that this class is like mad. All right, all right, all right. Okay, Kushio on verses 9 through 11. Rabbi Shapiro, can you make them a little bit bigger? Yes, just a little bit more. Yeah, ooh, yeah, pause. Okay, good. Yes, Karen. I thought if you see God, you die. Awesome, great. I mean, not awesome that you would die. Awesome question. <laughs> Uh, yeah, great point, right? We were just told not so long ago that if you see the face of God or any of God, you're going to die. And that's why we only see the back of God at one point. Fantastic. Renee. What is likeness of a pavement? Yeah. Good. So one of the things that Rabbi Shapiro mentioned is that it's really hard to translate. Like you can translate each of these words, but it's very hard to put them together. And that is one of the pieces that I know I'm going to be focusing most of my commentaries on, and I think Robert Shapiro has some stuff on that also. Um, so just keep, yes, keep that as a question. And also the sky being pure. Yeah. Does that mean it was untouched? Uh, yeah, may maybe, maybe. Uh, Jay. Why did God not raise God's hand against the leaders of the Israelites? Great. Yeah. What made God stop do that? Um, when it seems as though that was a very natural reaction for God in that moment. What, what ceased that from happening? Denise. Why are they eating and drinking at that moment? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great. Yeah. These three verses feel like there's a lot of what, what, why, like why now? Why was this happening? Rabbi Shapiro is very, very excited about these verses. So I'm excited to hear how he responds to these questions. But yeah, that was, that was also a question I had, like that seems kind of, random for this current moment uh why all of a sudden are you just now like going on with your regular human business after having this moment uh joanna to so picking up on denise's comment not only like a question about why they're eating and drinking but like eating and drinking with god feels like something very intimate like that's something you do with your good friend it you know, let's have a picnic with God. That doesn't feel like, you know, if you told me that was a sentence in the Torah, that one would say like, oh, yes, look at that. That's there. The other comment I have, which I mean, I don't know, really know what to do with this, but in a kind of 
Purim way, this is a little bit like Wizard of Oz-ish, like, to me, you know, follow the yellow brick road to the wizard, follow the, you know, blue sapphire pavement to God. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. (laughs) Uh, Elon. So uh, to pick up a little bit on that Wizard of Oz thing, in a way, that's what that explains why they ate and drank in in that if you remember the first time uh, they come in and meet the wizard, they're they're quaking. Right. And, and, uh, you know, the the cowardly lion runs out of the uh, of the room. Right. So I think their expectation based on their experience with God up until this point, which was that God was an angry and vengeful God, they were completely expecting to get slapped upside the head. Right. And when that didn't happen, they ate and drank in celebration of the fact that, you know, all's good. Yeah. Great. Yeah. There is, there is something very anthropomorphic about God and the actions that surround God in this moment that we don't expect of the God that we've just met and seen and heard about, nor the reaction of the people to that God, right? They were just so scared of him, a God. And now all of a sudden we're like chummy and this is all fine. And because there's Sapphire to follow, it's going to be okay. Like, it seems like a very bizarre way of now interacting with with this God figure that the people have been around for a while. Uh, other questions, thoughts, comments? I One of my questions that I didn't find any answers on, um, though... I didn't, I didn't dig too deeply into modern day uh, writers, so it's possible it would be found there. Is this where we get the idea of God in the sky, right? Of God sitting on a throne in the sky. Is that where we, is this where that comes from? Because this is the first time God has been on a mountain. God has been in a garden that doesn't, you know, that's, that's like a utopian garden. God has been in places that are hard for us to imagine, However, we've never heard of God in the sky until now. And then we're going to continue hearing about God in clouds and those kinds of things. But we haven't heard about God's feet in the sky. And I just wondered if that's where um, big man in the sky comes from. Uh, Okay. I don't see any other kushiot. So Rabbi Shapiro, I will turn this right back over to, uh, to your desk. So much, I have so I have so much to say. I love I love these ver- I love these verses so much. Um, I'll 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 just what uh, so much to say. What I what I love about these verses on like a meta level is that you know part part of the rabbinic project right as as I think everybody knows on this call right and Rabbi Schatz was actually speaking to this last week in terms of of Karaites. We were talking about Karaites last week. Um, we we are not Torah Jews, right? We're rabbinic Jews that that we practice Judaism as filtered through the normative lens of the rabbinic understanding of what Torah is, and so part of what that project entails is finding the connections and trying to kind of pull pieces together and smooth out discrepancies. And okay, it says this here and it says that there, but how do we understand that? But sometimes you get pockets that you, you just can't quite smooth out, <laughs> right? That, that the Torah is a patchwork, that there are different pieces, there's different theologies embedded within there. And, and these verses, uh, the Mafarshim try, right? The rabbis tried, but yes, yes, still 
like Rambam, of course, because, you know, Rambam being Rambam, who everything is intellectual. He's like, well, you know, it, it, it wasn't that they saw God. It was an intellectual perception. It's like, Rambam, man, come, come on. Like, read, read, read the verses. That's obviously not what's happening here, but right? But it could be, but it could be, but it could be. Because when you read what Rambam is saying, Rambam is picking up on the language of that verse, which says that they saw God, but then everything that, that, they, uh, that they explain or that they tell us about in a visual way it has nothing to do with God. It has to do with the surroundings of God. So the pavement and the feet, we don't know what the, we don't know what God looks like. We only know what the surrounding pieces of God looks like. Sure. <laughs> and um, there's, I think, also something to be said for, like folks are asking, well, what's this eating and drinking, right? Yeah. I, I think there's something really powerful about this idea and some of the commentators pick up on this, right? That, that you're, you're connecting this sort of trippy experience, right? With something that's very concrete, right? That, that you're grounding what is a sort of mystical esoteric experience this is how I read these verses, right? I'm, I'm, I'm tipping my, I'm not tipping off my hand. I'm playing my hand, right? That, that, that that's my sense of what these verses are communicating and then, like, Davka grounding it in something that is very physical, corporeal, concrete, right? Like, that, that, that Judaism is not something, it's not, a, it's not an experience where you go off, you have a mystical experience in and of itself, that we, 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 that those two are inextricably connected, at least in the theological understanding of this narrative. So I think that's very cool. I'm going to say two, I'm going to say two, that I could, I could get into, like, the linguistics and the, the, the what is the sapphire clear pavement sky situation that. great rabbi shots will do that she'll explain those words perfectly flawlessly and clearly um but what i'll actually get away from the very heady pieces of this because it's extremely easy for me to do i could riff on this for an extended period of time um what i'll what i'll share is actually two places where i saw very concrete connections between this narrative and pieces that we sort of know elsewhere in our tradition, right? Because I think particularly when it comes to narratives like this, that seem kind of out of left field and what is even really doing here? And maybe they just actually left those three verses in by mistake. Um, no, that, that there actually are places, even though they are tough verses to kind of smooth out, um, that, that they kind of pop up elsewhere. We can, we can see those ideas elsewhere. So one piece that I saw um, was, and this was actually, was in the Talmud, it's in Masechet Chulin, and basically um, Rabbi Meir, Chulin 89a, for those keeping score at home, um, Rabbi Meir is, is asking about why is it that um, the color that we're supposed to have on tzitzit is this sky blue, right? If you think about tzitzit, and right, the like trailer on tzitzi. Why is it supposed to be that color? And he, doth, like, he specific. What? What are you smiling about, Rabbi? I, this was going to be something I brought. It's okay. Continue. 
No, but it's cool, right? Because because the whole point is, it seems like it's this. I I got so much. I can fill. I know, but I don't have so much, so it's okay. You go, <laughs> keep going. <laughs> you should have gone first, then. You know. No, no, go ahead. Um, I love the idea that, and he says very clearly, right, the color of that dye acts as an indication of the bond between the Jewish people and the divine presence, right? So, so something that seems to be esoteric, weird blip of narrative, right? It's actually something that is very specifically grounded in a very concrete ritual that is quite well known. And yet when you see that sky blue, it should hearken to this specific experience that was so unique, right? So I, th- I think that that's a really cool connection in terms of taking this this funky chunk of narrative and, and grounding it in something very specific ritually. Rabbi Shantz, did you have anything else you wanted to share about that specific piece of Talmud that I have so thoughtlessly yoinked um, away from you? No, not thoughtlessly. It's fine. Um, the, my... The reason that that was a specifically interesting piece of Talmud for me was because I I wanted this moment in Torah to somehow be grounded in something that didn't feel like the Wizard of Oz. I wanted it to feel like something that I could relate to, um, especially because it comes, and this is going into again what I'm going to be speaking about tomorrow, but especially because it goes in, comes right after these mitzvot and the Ten Commandments, which are supposed to be so connected to how we live our lives. And yet then this comes around and it makes me feel like God is very disconnected because I don't understand what it means to be sitting on a pavement of sapphire or to be, to even have feet, right? Like those are things that I can't, I can't imagine and and that's that's hard for me. That's a piece of dissonance that's hard for me in terms of wanting to believe in these Ten Commandments, but then hearing this as the character that came about after those Ten Commandments. So I liked the idea of Tchelet as being something that you actually wear it. And whether or not I believe that it's supposed to hearken you back to this exact moment, I do think it's supposed to bring you back to the Ten Commandments and to the Shema and to who we were as a people to be able to even say the Shema and all those kinds of things. And so I liked that. I liked that connection. I, I liked the the realness, so to speak, of, of that connection. I mean, I think to me, it also speaks to, <clears throat> I think, I think the challenge of having a powerful spiritual experience is, is the question of like, okay, what now? Right? Like what, what, what do you do with that? And I, I, I don't know what experiences folks on this call have or haven't had. I've had a couple, right? I've had a couple experiences in my life that I would articulate as like really powerful spiritual experiences. And then the question is, okay, well, well, how do I sustain a connection to that? And I think, um, and a couple of commentators, by the way, pick up on Nadav and Avihu specifically, and and I, I do not agree and do not like this direction. They say like, well, they they behold God here and they weren't supposed to. So that's why they get later, right? That that they shouldn't have done it here. God was in a good mood post-Sinai. So he didn't wipe them out here, but he's going to get them later, right? I would turn that on its head and I would say that when you've had that high of connecting with the spiritual experience, you might chase it. 
right? That, that when you've felt that close, when you've had that transcendent moment, the challenge of integrating that into your life rather than just sort of continually chasing after it. Um, I will say as a side note, the Fuchsburg Center, I never thought I would have, have put this in together. The Fuchsburg Center in Jerusalem had offered a really, in, offered a really interesting seminar um, on psychedelics and Judaism. And I was in that class um, a couple of weeks ago. And now the people who taught that um, are teaching a three series class called Touching But Not Touching on, on mystical spiritual experience in Judaism. I'll be there the next two Monday mornings if you'd like to join me. It's very interesting learning. Um, we don't have to go too far down that rabbit hole, but the sense that um, you can, that there, there are medicinal ways of doing that, but also within our tradition, there's a sense of transcending your usual experience of the world. And then the question of, okay, what now? And how do you then reintegrate that into your sense of the world? Bringing this back to where we actually started, that's why I, that's why I particularly like this this like tzitzit piece, right? That you have it with you, it's accessible, you can tangibly connect to it, and you're not always chasing after it, right? It's it's integrated into the way that you're living your life. Whether or not you wear tzitzit, whether or not like that specific piece resonates with you, I think it's a, it's a meaningful question to ask. That when you have a big experience okay, what now, right? How, how do I bring that into my everyday life in a way that's that's sustainable and still um, tangible? I think that that's a good um, question. Uh, can you put in the name of the class? Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. I, all, I just want to show, can I just show this piece of Talmud for a second? Is that okay? Absolutely. I just don't know if it would take away. Okay. I just want to, because there's one other piece of this that I think will be easier to see than, than to hear. Um, I feel like that's my catchphrase. Um, but there is something about the way that they also connect. So you're saying that you need to see God rather than to hear God, Rabbi Schatz, is what you're saying. So these verses. That, okay. Shh, that's not what I was saying. What? Um, Okay. No different. No, that's great. There are different kinds of learners, so there need to be different kinds of experiences of Sinai. Yeah, yeah, but I don't know that. That's, that's great, I'm... isn't that great? <laughs> that's so great. That's like your whole deal. Okay. 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 You're very, very excited. Okay. I love these verses. I know. So this part right here that <laughs> starts, it is because sky blue. Ooh, sky blue dye is similar in its color to the sea. Right, so we're talking about something above because we're talking about God in the sky. So we're talking about the sky, and now we're talking about the sea, which is below. And the sea is similar to the sky, and the sky is similar to the sapphire stone, and the sapphire stone is similar to the throne of glory, as it's stated in the verses we just read. And then it says here, and above the, uh, sorry, that's, uh, yeah, and above the firmament that was over their heads was the likeness of a throne as the appearance of a sapphire stone. So again, we're taking something that's high up to something that's low on the ground. Therefore, the throne is similar to the heavens. The color of sky blue dye acts as an indication of the bond between the Jewish people and the divine presence. So the other thing for me that was very interesting about this Gemara is that it takes you, it, it connects the up, the the higher up and the lower down. Whether you want to think about that in like a Kabbalistic sense, like go for it, or just in terms of the way that we think of things with a hierarchy. Things that are higher up are, are at times less tangible than things that are lower down. We are grounded to the ground. <laughs> uh, 
unless we are able to somehow reach higher heights, which takes effort and takes usually assistance. So the idea here that this blue is is also showing us how God can be connected both in the higher up experiences, places, insert word there, and the just mundane, regular, down-to-earth experiences and places. I also love, I love the idea of how we can connect to God in all of those different ways. And the way that you remember all of that is by wearing it. So the most mundane, something that is on your body all the time. Uh, so anyway, that was, that, that to me was just like the, the cherry on the Sunday. You're back to you. I've been talking a lot. I'm going to pause and see if other people might actually want to oh, talk. Great. I, I can keep riffing on this for a while, but. Anyone have any thoughts, comments? Yeah, only the comment on uh, psychedelics. And when you read that, um, when you read that passage, you wonder whether Rabbi Meyer was partaking himself in some of those. Yes. Yes, there are many moments in the Gemara that you wonder what was actually going on in that Beit Midrash when that was written. And this is one of them. Mm. Any other thoughts? All right, Rabbi Shapiro. So the, so let, lest I spin out into the sapphire pavement too far, I'll, I'll add in sort of like the other concrete-ish, ritual-ish piece that I saw, which was... I gotta tell you, if you if you wanna <laughs> if you wanna wonder uh, what's going on with the biochemistry of some rabbis, you guys should read Rabbeinu Bachia on these verses because oh boy, is he having a very you think I'm having fun that that dude really goes for it. Um, but in one of his more grounded moments of analysis on these verses, um, he connects. Um, and uh, this goes to the, the question that was posted um, in the chat for those of you who, who are listening. Um, Denise uh, asked in the chat, are the references to, um, well, Denise was asked about feet, but she, but she also said, are the references to eating and drinking a nod to integrating the spiritual on the everyday, to which, I mean, of course, commentators hold differently because, you know, rabbinic Judaism. Um, but that, that there are definitely those who say yes, and, and I do as well. And Rabbeinu Bachia takes it in a, in a similar direction. He says, according to the plain meaning of the text, they considered the day a festival in view of having been granted such insights and having survived the experience, right? Okay, we've had this incredible moment, uh, right? They, as, as we know in our tradition, they tried to kill us, they failed, let's eat. Um, so adapted here, uh, we might've died, we didn't, let's eat. Um, so, so in a very similar vein, um, and what he says is this would be comparable to Yaakov, um, who said, if, if you remember back, right, for I've seen God face to face and my life has been spared, um, back in that narrative. And then this is the more concrete piece. Bachia says, this is also why the high priest used to make a feast at the end of Yom Kippur every time after he had come out of the Holy of Holies without having been harmed in body or spirit by the experience, right? So I, I think to me that that's um, a helpful analog in terms of another more kind of well-known or concrete piece out of our tradition, right? That we know that that was, that, that the high priest would go into that holiest sanctum on the holiest day of the year, say God's ineffable name, right? The, the one and only time that that name was uttered over the course of the year, 
and that he he would survive. So what does he do? He Davka eats and drinks, right? That he sort of brings himself back into like the the physical experience of the world. And again, that that integration of the ethereal, divine, transcendent with a much more concrete everyday experience, right? Um, I, I think there's really something to that. Um, and I think um, it's just helpful in thinking about these verses that are a little trippy um, to see how, how they connect to other pieces of our tradition that are more concrete and also a, a little more um, well-known. I think that's, that's a helpful construct for, for illuminating some pieces of that. Um, just to, it, to bring us to the eating and drinking again for one second, um, for the past few weeks, I, I mentioned this maybe now two weeks ago, um, a friend of mine who works at the Great Synagogue in Sydney, Australia, Rabbi Phil Kaplan, <clears throat> Um, who I met through the same fellowship that I met Rabbi Josh Pernick, who I teach my game class with, um, has written on the verses that we've chosen for this class, which is just really a, a crazy thing. I texted him last night to say, like, do you know... Do you know what's happened on my computer? And so you choose to write about it. But it's great because often I've prepared for this class and then I see what, what he's written. And he added on this on this piece about the eating and drinking something that I hadn't yet seen in my preparation. But he says that the Rashbam, Rabbi Shmuel the mayor, who's uh, Rashi's grandson, says that the, the meaning of the elders seeing means that the manifestations of God's attributes that they had experienced made God as real to them as if they had seen God with their physical eyes. So this scene was about the mental perception of the reality of God and not actually viewing him with physical human senses. I think him there was supposed to be God, though it wasn't capitalized, so I'm not sure. But not seeing God with with actual, Rabbi Shapiro doesn't, doesn't agree. But I think that this is, it's interesting because then perhaps they thought that they were having a picnic with God, but in, but why are you laughing at me? It's like the idea of a picnic with God. It's like, here's your oh. lemonade and here are your hot dogs. <laughs> here is God, God, here's your, here's your napkin to make sure the ants are <laughs> the ketchup. But maybe that instead of God actually being present as a character drinking lemonade in Rabbi Shapiro's brain, maybe what was happening was they had felt such an overwhelming sense of understanding God, right? To go back to that idea of Nasev and Ishma, they had now understood the attributes of God that they then brought into their everyday moments, just like eating and drinking. So the eating and drinking is important here, according to the Rashbam, because you are now making that also a godly interaction. Whereas before, it would have just been seen as eating and drinking uh, and not necessarily something that God would have been present in. So here, so here's why I'm shaking my head. Okay. Uh, I, the pshat is the pshat, right? The pshat is the pshat that, that they, they, they ate and drank. That, not just that. Thank you. Right. That, they, that via road, right. That they, that they saw. And I think that that doesn't mesh well with a lot of normative rabbinic theology. That's fine. But the verses still say what they say. And, and I think, totally. and, and it's interesting, like when you're saying that 70 Shema, 
I, I wonder about like applying that construct here too, right? Vayiru vayechazu. I would almost say that as like vayiru, like they they phys- like they they actually saw verse ten. Super weird. What the heck is actually going on here? Verse yeah. and then verse eleven vayechazu. Right? There was the physical experience of seeing this sapphire pavement, whatever is going on here. And they saw that they were safe. And Vayechazu, then there was that sort of like integrated understanding of what happened. And then because they had gotten that right out of this sort of overwhelming sensory experience, there's the deeper sort of seeing of what's happening. And then because they've achieved that integration, then they can bring that into back the physical realm, eating and drinking, right? But but for me, like sidelining the physical seeing, I think to me, cuts out part of what's interesting, fun, powerful about these verses. Uh, Yeah, I I think, but to see it and then to perceive are two different things. And I think that that's how these two verbs are being used, right? It's also interesting, I never noticed this until I just looked back at the verses, that it says Elohei Yisrael for one and then Elohim for the other. And Elohei Yisrael is much more of a personal you know, you're a member of my shul God, as opposed to like the divine, (laughs) the divine um, idea of Elohim. And like when you, the word, the word chaza, right, which is a different, like the root of the conjugation, is much more uh, like mindful as opposed to visual, so the the mindful or the perception or the spiritual prophetic scene of God, I don't know. I I, I still stand by. We're we're now. I th- I mean I think we're now actually saying similar things, which is that there was the physical. I don't know if you're saying this in terms of Beirut, but like the physical seeing made the deeper understanding possible. That That's what I'm saying. That, that physical totally. seeing. But then that deep. could mean that the, going back to the Rabbi Kaplan slash Rabbi Schatz interpretation of the picnic, that it wasn't actually physically seen God present, but rather the idea of being with God and understanding godliness in that moment. We completely agree, except for the part where we utterly. Okay. Renee has very patiently had her virtual hand up. We've, we've been talking over her virtual hand. That's right. I, I was just curious. I mean, I think I asked earlier, but so in today, I mean, very much learning and seeing and hearing and learning is associated with food in our in our religion. I mean, kiddushes yeah. and right meals that we have. Sure. For holidays and Shabbat and learning, you know, when you finish a portion of learning, having a, a meal. Mm-hmm. Could this have been like the first, the start of that? Yeah, for sure. Like a siyum or mm-hmm. any kind of, I mean, Rabbi Shapiro mentioned a chag before. Like, yeah, a suda mitzvah. I mean, I don't know. that I, I can't say that this is where that comes from. I don't believe that it is, but it is, but but it is akin to all of those moments because something holy happened for them to be able to then celebrate or commemorate with a meal, which is exactly what we do for all of those moments of siyum or suda mitzvah or veggie cholent at Temple Betham in Pilchal. 
Yeah. It, it tastes better in pilch. So if you've never tried it in pilch. Everything know. tastes better in pilch. That was a weird sentence, but yeah, sure. Um, so that, yeah, I think, again, I don't, I think it comes from halacha, like to have actual meals after those things, but, but there's a beautiful way of thinking about that. Elon. So what's disturbing about the food and drink from my perspective is that it's not in reality, the way it's placed in the phrasing it's not in reaction to, wow, we're in front of God. Isn't this great? Right. Right. It's God didn't whack us. Isn't this great? Right. So if, if they just play, wow, we, we, we see the sapphire. I don't have the wording in front of me. We see this. This is awesome. This is a celebratory moment. How great is that? The fact that it, the lead-in says, yet God didn't, I don't remember what the exact word is, didn't harm them or raise his hand or whatever it was. And then they, the celebrating of not getting whacked is kind of not as, doesn't feel as good as as the celebrating of the awe of the moment. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think, um, I was saying that I said to Rabbi Schatz in passing when we were preparing these verses, I think it's, it's an interesting juxtaposition with what we were talking about last week a bit, right. Where we were talking about the, the collective, fear of what might happen and it was it was said earlier that that maybe what's going on here is it's it's not that god made the choice to not raise god's hand against them but that people the people who were there these these 74 people had this experience and they might have thought that because of what they previously understood of god that this would be what would happen to them but by that not happening, they learned something new about God, and therefore they were able to eat and drink and celebrate that fact, right? That, that, that's, how, that's how I would understand that, is it's not necessarily about God, right? Like, like, like I, I mentioned that, you know, in terms of the understanding of Nadav and Avihu, that like, oh, well, God was just in a good mood post-Sinai, and he, he sort of, you know, got him later, right? He just didn't want to do it right after... Um, this great thing, I, I would say it as they might have thought this, but that didn't happen. And so therefore, that's that's why the celebration happens the way it does. So Chizkuni says something really interesting to this point, Elon, and I'll read it in a second. The other thing for us to um, for us to think about is that the Hebrew says shlach yado, which means to send out your hand. And I do wonder how much of that how much of the translation has made it sound negative <laughs> as opposed to not necessarily positive, but like raising a hand in English makes it sound like he was going to smack the people or somehow harm them. And sending out a hand could, could be that that's what the hand ended up doing, but it could also be more of a helpful gesture, which is not how most of the rabbis translate it. But Chizkuni says this, and I'll, then, then Denise, you can ask your question. So Chizkuni says, um, God did not raise God's hand. He, uh, Chizkuni also translated, translates, translates it that way. God had reason to punish the people who had been granted this vision because they carried on as if this was nothing extraordinary by eating and drinking. According to this interpretation at this time, immediately before the giving of the Torah, God did not wish to spoil the joyous mood of the people. 
An alternate approach to these lines, all the Torah tells us is that in spite of having been granted such visions, and one could have expected that this would have made them temporarily like angels, like Moses, uh, these nobles of the people had not attained that level of prophecy. They could not, they could, sorry, continue to eat and drink without thereby harming themselves. So, I, I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily buy this, nor think that this is like a satisfactory way of answering the question of how come the people still did that, and it explains a little bit around what what God might have been imagining the people to have supposed to do or been feeling or the way they should have been celebrating, uh, and and that they didn't do it the way that that God would have expected it to happen. Counterpoint to that. Okay. So that you guys should know that it's not just crazy Shapiro, like, making up this stuff because he likes these verses. Um, um, Sforno has a different take on this, um, saying that God, like, like it, it's, a, it's a longer piece, but, like, this in is Greek. The, this is the Shlach Yado commentary. Correct, correct, correct. And a, diff, a different take on Shlach Yado, uh, basically saying God did not extend his helping hand to enable these people to grant them the level of prophetic status while they were oblivious to their five senses with which they perceive while merely human beings, like, like a a gloss on this, just to summarize, because it's a longer piece says the main point our author makes as opposed to other commentators is that this hand of God is not perceived by him as one that is uh, retributive and retributive, retributive, punitive in character, uh, but on the contrary, as one that elevates the human being to spiritually higher dimensions, right? So so as Rabbi Schatz is saying, like this idea of shalach, it's like, it's not just like hitting, but it's that God didn't necessarily need to elevate them with with God's hand, right? That That they were able to kind of get there themselves, right? Turning this idea of shalach yado in, into a very different understanding of what that is. A positive understanding, which is different. Exactly. exactly. Uh, um, I think, did Denise have her hand up? Denise has her hand up. Denise, what's up? So, so when you were talking about um, we could have been stricken and we weren't, wow, thank God, so to speak, um, it made me think about the conversation, I think last week, where we were talking about that maybe it's a little bit hard to connect to the loving side of God after seeing all these plagues and drowning Egyptians and everything. And, and then this kind of takes a step in that direction of showing like that there is a softer side to God and it's not all about wrath and all that stuff. And then when you talked about Shlach Yado, I thought, well, that that connects also to the word Beshalach, which is where all the worst of the plagues and the sea and everything, not the plagues, but the sea. Um, so I just thought that was an interesting word choice. Yeah. That's all. That's an interesting choice. I was thinking of Shlach Lecha, which is another Parsha, which is all about lying. But um, <laughs> so there's no connection there. But 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 the idea of, of sending something out. <clears throat> yeah. Um, Shapiro, do you have anything else to share? Rabbi Shapiro, do you have anything else to share? Hey, hey, you. I never, people should know I never call you Shapiro in real life. I just, for some reason here, it comes to me as a thing to call you. Um, 
the the I'll, I'll I I've been pretty good at at reining myself in with like the trippy hippy dippy mysticaly stuff. So I'll just share like one one brief piece before we wrap up. Um, I'm going to start a new class. Rabbi Shapiro's trippy hippy dippy Judaism. That'll be fun. Um, the, that word um, atzilei is usually translated as like elders. Shabbat um, shalom, Karen. Bye. Um, as elders or nobles or whatever it is. But Rabbeinu Bachia, um, uh, Rabbeinu Bachia connects it with um, a word that shows up a lot in like Kabbalistic writings, atzilut, which is often translated as emanation right, an emanation of God down into the world. Um, and so he says in terms of what, talking about what's what's happening with these people, right? Like, again, so, so like what's happening because there are different words used over the course of these verses, right? Like in verse nine, they're, they're referred to as Ziknei Yisrael, right? The, the elders of Israel. But in verse 11 here, they're Atzilei B'nei Yisrael. So, why, so what's going on there, with the different word choice, you you would seem to think um, that um, Renee's asking, is it related to save lehatzil? I think it's different because of the aleph rather than the hey. Um, but um, I, I could I could be wrong. You're not. Um, well, it's the first time for everything. Um, so so uh, Ravina Bacha connects it with this idea of emanation. So he says that. Some of some of God's God's spirit had emanated to them while they were standing at this holy site. So it, it is like like a, a a mystically idea that we that we could like riff on in that way. But I do think it's also interesting because it's very specifically grounded in the in the word choice of the verses, right? And asking the question, why is it that there, it seems like there's a different word? being used to describe these people here. And it's because of what has, what has happened to them, right? That over the course of their experience, we didn't, we didn't get into the word choice here at all for what's happening, (laughs) for what's happening in verse 10. Um, All that in terms of like the Sapphire and the, this and the leave not, which only shows up once in the whole Torah. Um, And, and the color, I read a whole thing that was talking about like Lavan and Sapir. And it seems like it's, it's sapphire, but there's an inner whiteness that you can only see if you get to it through the. This is. I also the, read something that said that that sapphire is either black or white, and I was like, no, that's just not the color of sapphire. But anyway, so I stopped. Different, I was reading. There's different types of sapphire, right? And and the piece side piece that that this idea there's actually two colors and in order it's indicating that in prophecy you need to move through the one to like the deeper one underneath which is very interesting anyway going back to Atila Dene Israel this idea that because of what has happened there 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 has been a transformation and you can see that in the word that's being used to describe them rather than Zikne Bene Israel they're Atila Bene Israel and or Zikne Israel, they're Atzilei Bene Israel, that, that there has been something that has happened that has impacted them in this experience in terms of, of the divinity and the holiness that has happened over the course of this brief but um, really powerful experience. And I think I, I like how that's grounded linguistically and hints at something something much deeper. Could it be, not to throw you off with 30 seconds left of class, could it be that... Those are two different groups of people. 
Could be. Could it be that Zikne Israel were the ones who got to behold God and see God in that way? But yeah. then the chieftains of Israel were the ones who, you know, going along with what we were discussing with Elon, were the ones who needed that extra shove or, or deserved that extra punishment. Um, like, could they have been completely different groups of people at different times even? Or, or are the Atzilei B'nai Israel a subset of Zikne Israel? Is it just some of them? Right. Because yeah, I, looked up, absolutely. I looked up the word Atzilei, it means like chief, like a chief of something, which Zikne Israel were, you know, like the, the elders, the people who than everybody else. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it could be a different group. It could be a subgroup. It could be all of them that they had all been transformed by that experience. Like, yeah, I mean, any any question that further destabilizes this this brief narrative, I'm all in favor of because I think it leans into the inherently um, confusing nature of these verses, which I think is telling us something about the experience. Joanna, and then we're going to wrap up. It's interesting also to think, I think, about the word atile in terms of like words of leadership that we have in the Bible. Because when you say the word chief, when I reverse translate that into Hebrew, the word I want to use is um, nasi, um, um, which in modern day Hebrew means president. But in biblical Hebrew, um, like in Parshat Naso, where we go through all those gifts, I think it's usually translated as like the chief of each tribe, you know, brought forward their gift. And I I just looked quickly in an online concordance, and I believe this is the only place in the Torah that this word appears, which also gives some credence to the fact that there has to be something special or different going on here. Instead of, you know, we have so many words for leadership. We have Nisi'im and we have Shoftim and we have Shotrim and all kinds of words for leadership. And here is one that appears nowhere else. Huh. I'm, so, I'm so glad to have another uh, Concordance fan in the house. <laughs> another Hapaxagamanan. Woohoo! Uh, yeah, I mean, Rabbi Shatz, do you, have, do you have a thought to wrap up? Because something else just popped into my brain that is, that is one last random riff. Yeah, would you? I would. Okay. Um, th- this might not necessarily be grounded in anything, but the other um, linguistic association that popped into my head is that um, etzel also means next to. Yeah. Right? Zet etzel zet. Um, and so when we think about an experience of intimacy, closeness, which is like, again, what I'm, I'm suggesting is happening here, like Atzilei B'nai Israel are like the ones of B'nai Israel who were like, next to right like close to um this experience which which i think can can reverberate in a couple of different ways here um but but that just popped into my head as like another right that those who were like next to close to this experience were the ones who either weren't almost smoked and then not or who did not need to be elevated because of their experience and therefore then um they beheld God and, and they ate and drank. Um, again, I adore these verses. I could riff on them for a, a, an extended period of time. I'll just sort of briefly offer up that, A, the Torah has lots of great pieces uh, that, that, you never, that you never might have known were there. And you can get to keep digging and, and find them. I'll share the last, last, uh, the, the last thing I'll share is the very first piece of teaching that I received on this, which was um, I sort of stumbled upon these verses 
on the Shabbaton of my first year of rabbinical school. Um, and I, I was like lit up by them. I was very, very excited. Um, and I brought them to Reb Mimi, who, who was then and is now a dear uh, teacher of mine who actually reconnected with it through the class at the virtual Fuchsburg Center that I mentioned earlier. And we got to catch up recently. And I was, I was like freaking out. I was like, how can they see God? What's going on here? This is crazy. And she just sort of paused and she said, well, they were able to do that because they weren't alone, because they were together. Um, and if you look at all of the verbs here, they're all in the plural, right? So th there is something that we are able to do collectively that it just isn't possible when we are um, uh, atomistic individuals. Um, I think we are very much feeling that now in a variety of ways. We're missing the things that we like doing collectively that we now have to do individually. Um, and of course, we are called to find the ways that we can still do things collectively as a group, um, certainly including this wonderful class that we get to share every week. So with that, Shabbat Shalom. Great seeing you guys. Amen. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.